Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, my guess is that before you've done some kind of remodeling job in your house, uh, maybe you're renovating a kitchen, a bathroom, redoing some other area of the house, probably one of the first steps or indications of that was maybe a dumpster appeared out in your driveway, out on the road, uh, to fill that with stuff that you're going to take out of your house and replace with something that's new. Uh, I actually purchased an older house when I moved into the community, and uh, it was mostly plaster, plaster walls and plaster ceiling. And so over the course of years, I've had a dumpster out in my driveway uh, because I've taken out all of the plaster in my house and replaced it with drywall. And so a dumpster is a sign that there's something new on the horizon. At the end of Revelation, we run into a lot of judgment. But judgment is not simply God getting angry. It's not him throwing his elbows around. Judgment is actually an indication that newness is coming. For God to bring about his new creation, he must remove that which is evil. For God to bring about restoration and beauty as he intended, it requires him to dispense with that which is evil and that which has corrupted his creation. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18 says this, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name. Here's what it says, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And so judgment is about God getting rid of that which destroys the earth. If you have an apple and you want to eat it and has a rotten spot on it, you actually get rid of the rotten spot so you can enjoy the rest of the apple. God's judgment rids the world of evil so that he can begin his new creation. So as you go through, the, through Revelation, you actually find, kind of introduced in Revelation, forces that oppose God in a certain order. And then in the reverse order, as Revelation continues, you find that those same forces are removed from God's creation and judged. I'll show you how that works. In Revelation chapter 6, death and Hades, Hades is simply a name that's sort of the realm of the dead. Uh, we know that death and Hades, the, the, the nature of dying, is sort of one of our greatest enemies. It robs us of life. So in Revelation 6, death and Hades show up as our enemy. In Revelation 12, the dragon, Satan, the serpent is mentioned. In Revelation 13, the beast and the false prophet, the ones who execute the will of Satan, they're brought up in Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation 17, Babylon is mentioned as a picture of humanity's hubris and arrogance and independence from God. And then in reverse order, starting in Revelation 18, those same things are removed. So in Revelation 18, Babylon falls. In Revelation 19, the beast and false prophet are removed. In Revelation 20, the dragon and then death and Hades are removed as well. So we're into the, the, the enemies of God's creation, that which disrupts his creation, are first introduced in a certain way. And then in reverse order, we're actually told that they're removed. Well, that brings us to Revelation 20, because in Revelation 20, there's a significant amount of judgment going on. Before we dive into that, just a reminder, uh, next week we will continue in Revelation. It'll take us through probably April the 23rd. We'll conclude the whole thing. Uh, but we'll begin with a new series title next week called Triumph of the Lamb. Uh, that'll take us through Easter, and that'll focus on Revelation 21 and 22, the God's restoration, the new aspects of his new creation. So we're looking forward to that next Sunday. 
I'm going to stay under to come, and she's going to read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Uh, so tune in. Uh, these are verses that deal with uh, God's limitation of Satan, the evil one. And so listen to this as Diana reads Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the, that ancient serpent who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Thank you, Diana. Uh, Revelation 20 is pretty challenging, actually. I'm kind of thankful to move on from the challenging section of Revelation. Uh, there's only two chapters left, which are easy, so we've waded through the thick stuff. But we'll keep going with Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we mentioned throughout this series there's a number of areas where there are trunks of truth that's followers of Jesus. They're established, they're secure, they're certain. Every follower of Jesus believes in them. Things like the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that this is God's breathed word. The fact that we are right with God through faith in the person of Christ. That's a trunk of truth. Something that we believe in. The deity of the person of Jesus Christ. The fact that God is one being, but he exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are trunks of truth. Then we also said when it comes to revelation, there are branches of truth. That maybe there's different perspectives and different ways of understanding. There's a number of different perspectives on revelation as a whole. And especially when you get to Revelation chapter 20. And so we'll talk through a couple of the branches, try not to get too involved in those details, but mostly give some application and some kind of what difference does it make kind of things. Notice it's uh, Revelation 21 starts out this way. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. In verse 2, uh, it'll be in the screens. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the first question is simply this. This is a thousand years. What does that mean? Is that a literal thousand years? Is it a symbolic thousand years? What is meant by the thousand years? Uh, maybe if you've been around church circles, you've heard the word millennium. Uh, the word millennium doesn't actually appear in Revelation, but it's simply a word that references a thousand years that we find here in Revelation chapter 22 and a couple of the other verses. Um, again, there are different branches. Some would take it more literally. That's a literal thousand years. Others would take it more symbolically. Let me just mention a few thoughts when it comes to symbolism. First, a thousand is used periodically in Scripture as a symbol. Uh, Psalm chapter 50 says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. When you come to Revelation in particular, we find there's a lot of numbers that are referenced symbolically. The number four, we said, represents all the expanse of creation from north, south, east, and west. We look at the number 666. That was three sixes, six being one incomplete of seven, which is the perfect number. And so 666 represents complete incompleteness, absolute imperfection. The fullness of imperfection is what 666 references or symbolizes. We talked about the number seven is for completion based on the seven days of creation, the seven days of our week. We looked at the number 10 being a symbol of power. We looked at 24 representing God's redemptive work in the Old Testament and New Testament through the Old Testament tribes of Israel, the New Testament apostles. 
We looked at the 144,000. That's just 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. But that's references the complete redemptive community of God's people, the people that belong to him. Uh, just a reminder also, even in other parts of the scripture, sometimes we have symbols. Uh, John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. Even in John's gospel, I remember a speaker being here a number of years ago. He pointed this out. In John chapter 2 in his gospel, uh, Jesus talks about destroying this temple. They misunderstood him because they took him too literally. Jesus wasn't talking about the building temple. He was talking about his own life. His body was the temple. So they misunderstood Jesus because they were actually understanding him too literally. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus misunderstands him because he takes Jesus too literally. Jesus is using the symbol of being born that needs to be born spiritually of God to belong to the Father in heaven. In John chapter 4, Jesus talks to the woman at the well about living water. She, she misunderstands him because she's taking him too literally and doesn't understand he's referencing to himself as a living water that gives eternal life. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Once again, he's misunderstood because they take him too literally. He's meaning that his, his flesh and blood is a spiritual life that we receive from him. And so we always got to be careful whether we should take it literally or symbolically. Well, that's kind of one significant challenge, and people take that in different ways. Another challenge is this. What does it mean by Satan being bound? Now, once again, this verse in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, uh, pay attention to this. It says, he sees the dragon. You can put that up on the screen. It would be great. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is a devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And notice a couple things here for a while. Notice that John exhausts the names of Satan. He calls him the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan. Any of you, when you were a little kid, or maybe you do it with your own kids, when they're in trouble or when you're in trouble, your full name, first, middle, and last was said? Happened to anybody kind of like experience with that? Anybody got some shutters with that? Like, you know... Like Nathan David Tucky, that's my middle name. Like that spells trouble. Um, so, so, so when when this says the ancient, this this dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan, there's a point of emphasis that this force of evil is going to be dealt with seriously. It's going to be dealt with with finality. I mean, John just exhausts the names for Satan. Because he wants it to stand out. Hey, like this particular person has come to its head. And then he says, and bound him for a thousand years. So the question is, what does it mean by him being bound? Like, does that mean completely bound? Does that mean limited in some way? Again, this can be seen a number of ways. Back in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we saw a verse that said this. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. If you could stick that verse on the screen, it'd be awesome. I think it's maybe, I didn't put it up there. Uh, yeah, it'd be awesome. Thank you. Um, he's hurled down. We said that that actually, we believe that happened. There's different perspectives as to when it happened. Many people believe that happened at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That at that moment, Satan was limited. He lost his power. He was dealt a death blow. He's certainly thrashing. He's still influencing, but he was limited. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is casting out demons. He's performing miracles. So he's doing works exactly against the person of Satan. Here's what he says. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Notice he says ties up the strong man, kind of some Connections to Satan being bound. Then he can plunder his house. Jesus says that because he wants to be crystal clear. Look, I have come. I'm tying up the strong man. I'm casting out demons. 
I'm bringing miracles. Satan is being defeated. It's the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. Colossians chapter 2.15, we referenced this verse a number of weeks ago. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so there was something that happened at the moment of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, that seriously was a major blow to the rule and reign of Satan. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then this next sentence I just love. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Listen, friends. The reason Jesus showed up was to bring in the dumpster for evil. The reason that Jesus showed up is because he showed up to destroy the devil's work. That will happen with finality at the end. But in some way, that happened in significant measure. At the moment Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, it demonstrated that God's plan of redemption was on track. Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, he threw them into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations. Just put that in your mind. To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended, that he must be set free for a short time. Again, this seems to be some kind of limitation. First, John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32 say this, and just kind of zone in here. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Listen, listen to the implications of when Satan is driven out. And I, when I am lifted up, it's a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. When I am lifted up, listen to this, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In other words, there seems to be some kind of connection between the limitation of Satan to, to deceive the nations and what Jesus says, that when he is lifted up, when he's crucified, he will draw people to himself and the forces of Satan will begin to be driven out. Tim Chester says this, for centuries, God's kingdom on earth was confined to one small nation, namely the nation of Israel, and they were rarely faithful to him. But since the cross, the message of Christ has spread across the globe and millions of people have been added to the kingdom. Yesterday, it accelerates. We dove into some of that. The incredible explosiveness of the gospel in our world today. The incredible number of people coming to Jesus in numbers that are absolutely unprecedented. Listen, friends, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what I think about the whole millennium, thousand years, Satan binding. There's a lot of different perspectives. But one thing I'm pretty sure of is that we underestimate the implications of Jesus' death in defeating Satan. Satan is not all-powerful. He does not have free reign. At the moment Jesus died, Satan was being driven out. When Jesus came, he was beginning to destroy the works of the devil. Just a little uh, thing here to maybe help you out a little bit. So some people would see the millennium or the thousand years actually beginning at the time of the cross. We'll just put an end here for millennium. And going until Jesus comes again. That would be take the thousand years a little bit more symbolically, uh, metaphorically. And Satan in some way or another is, is limited, is bound, and his ability to deceive the nations, resulting in the unprecedented movement of the gospel in the last 2,000 years compared to what happened before Jesus came. Others would say, now the millennium happened sort of like here, like we're living here. Millennium happens here. 
Uh, Jesus comes here, so Jesus comes before the millennium, and then there's maybe more of a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus. He comes again to kind of wipe things up and clean things out. So these are often, there's a couple of other perspectives as well, but I'd say those are probably the two most common. Um, again, whatever you want to choose, that's your business. But here's what I want to drive at. It is However you see it, friends, however you see it, I think we need a higher level of confidence in the forward movement of the gospel in our day. We need to move from hoarding and protecting the gospel to sowing and planting gospel seeds. If we really believe that God's spirit is at work, if we believe that at the cross, Satan was humiliated, that he was made a public spectacle of, if we believe that Satan has been defeated, that he's sort of on the defensive, if we believe, as Matthew says, Jesus is building the church, knows the gates of hell will not, in other words, Satan cannot appropriately defend the inward movement of the gospel into his kingdom. The gates of hell, the gates of Satan cannot stand up to the forward movement of the gospel, which means that, man, we need more courage, more enthusiasm for sharing gospel truth. I think this is something that God's been working on my heart for a while now. Sometimes that's easy. Often it's, I feel a little bit flat-footed and not knowing exactly where to go. But I'm going to encourage you in the next, in this week, keep an eye out for where you might just want to say something small about the gospel. Give you a couple of uh, ideas for that. This is maybe a month or so ago. I was in ShopRite and just noticed the guy's name tag said Adam. I said, hey, like, wow, so that's the first guy in the Bible. It wasn't a big interaction, but just a, a small interaction of, 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 the, of the Bible, of biblical truth. I have a friend who, uh, in the community, he experienced a death in his family. And he had already told me that he's not the religious type, he's not the religious deal, he's not the church guy. So all I can, you know, had already made that clear to me. Uh, but when, he, when uh, he lost a loved one, I said to him, hey, like, man, I'd be glad to pray with you or for you and the other person left behind. He said, like, eh, I'm good, no thanks. And so, like, of course I honored that request. But I just took a moment and said, hey, like, you know, we were outside, like we're standing here. It's a beautiful day out here. And I'm just telling you, the God who made this beautiful day loves you. I didn't have to force myself to say, no, I'm going to pray for you anyway. It's okay if you don't want to be prayed for. Like, I don't get turned down too often to offer prayers, uh, but I did that time. It's okay. I just said, hey, like, man, you are loved by God. Got another friend in the community who's a Buddhist. And uh, somebody in his family is going through a pretty difficult time physically and wet as well. And uh, friends, I don't care what religion anybody is, if they're no religion. Like, offer to pray for people. So I offered to pray for him and his loved one. And he accepted that and just, hey, like, let me pray for you. Just sharing that and just between services, someone come up to me. They said I was on a business trip about two months ago. He said, I was kind of late at night. I was in the restaurant of the hotel, and this um, person was there. I think it was a waiter, waiter or waitress. So I could tell she was maybe just kind of like a little bit off and distracted and going through a difficult time. And he said, first time in my life I've ever, ever, ever prayed for someone. I'm so, it's so awesome. He said, like, hey, how are you doing? Talk a little bit. I said, can I pray for you? It's the first time this guy ever prayed for somebody in that kind of way. The woman said, I've never had somebody pray for me. It was her first time to ever have somebody pray for her. And it was his first time to ever offer that and actually do it in a public setting. So friends, here's what I want to say. Be ridiculously generous in planting seeds of the gospel. Be ridiculously generous 
and planting small nuggets of truth. And let me remind you of this as well. Because we believe God's spirit is at work, because we believe that Satan is somehow limited, that he's on the pathway to defeat based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, it means this. Pay attention here. We neither need to be silent and hold back, but nor do we need to be brash and beat people over the head. If God's spirit is at work, you don't need to hit him with a Bible club. If we really believe God's spirit is at work, you don't need to be brash. You don't need to be nasty. If we really believe that God's spirit is at work, we don't need to hunker back in silence, nor do we need to be brash and antagonistic. We can, as Peter says earlier in the New Testament, we can gently and humbly share the truth. And so, man, I'm going to ask you to pray. Just say, God, make me aware, make me sensitive, make me in tune with just a small opportunity to plant the smallest seed with someone. Maybe it's a comment they make. Maybe you just sense that you want to say, hey, God bless your day today, and that's all you do. But man, may we be super generous in planting the seeds of the gospel. Revelation 26, we'll keep moving on here, says this, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, there's different perspectives on what is meant by the first resurrection. There's different ways of translating this. There's a lot of challenging stuff. We find the second death there. Well, let me just kind of like maybe try to summarize that really, really quickly. Here's what's kind of going on throughout Scripture. The message of Scripture is this. If you are born once, you die twice. What do we mean by that? If you are born once, you're born into this life, you're born in physically, uh, you will die at the end of your life. That's the first death in Scripture. That's the first death. Uh, we lose our physical lives. Unless Jesus comes back first, everybody who's born once will die. But then there's also a second death, and the second death is the final separation from God. So if you're born once, you actually die twice. You die in your physical life, but then there's also the second death that's referenced in this verse where you die, and that's eternal separation from God. Make sense? So born once, you die twice. The flip side of that is, you, if you're born twice, you're actually raised twice. You're born once physically to your mother, but then you're also born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. You receive new life from God and become his son or daughter. And from the rest of Scripture, other language that's connected to that is we are raised with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. And God, this is, this is not in the future, this is presently. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So when, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, you are raised to life in Christ. Spiritually, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection is at the end of time when you're raised to eternal, physical, bodily life in the new creation. So you are born once, you die twice, but if you're born twice, spiritually, Physically and spiritually, you're also raised twice. You're raised to new life in Christ. You're raised to be seated with him. You're raised to be with him in the heavenly realms. And you're also raised at the end of time, physically and bodily. Let me just kind of highlight that for a second. Here's what that means, friends. It means if you're a believer in Christ right now, your life is not just your little life in your chair. 
You are raised up with Christ. You are seated with him in heavenly realms. Maybe you say, like right now, my life stinks. It's a mess. It's chaotic. It's, I've made mistakes. I've had failures. Maybe you haven't accomplished in life 20% of what you want to do. Listen, friends. You are not your earthly record. You are the record of being seated with him in heavenly realms. Don't dare get defeated. Because anybody who's seated with Christ in heavenly realms is not defeated. Through faith in Christ, you are victorious because you are raised with him. You are not your problems. You are not your failures. You are raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly realms. I said earlier on, we've got to move from courting and protecting the gospel to sowing and planting gospel seeds. We also need to move from fear and doubt to courage and strength. You are not your fears. You are not your doubts. You are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. It means a couple of practical things. You don't need to satiate your earthly appetites because you're not a combination of your earthly appetites. You are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. You don't need to protect your status and how other people see you. You don't need the approval of those around you. Why? Because you're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. You don't need to prove that you're right and get into arguments and battle with people and make sure they know they're wrong and you're right. Why? Because you're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. You don't need to get done everything that you want to get done. You don't need to possess all that you want to possess. You don't need to accomplish every last little thing you want to, you want to accomplish. You don't need to acquire lots of stuff for yourself because you are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. You don't need to acquire every last little thing because you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Does that make sense? Man, friends, that's so practical. The first resurrection is you are raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly realms. And as Diana to come up and she's going to read Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 7 through 15, we'll move through these verses a bit more quickly. I won't be able to cover everything, but we'll kind of probably come back to stuff, some things at the end of the series. Uh, but let's dive into Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. Verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as in recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead and that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose names was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you, Diana. Uh, verses 7 and 8 say this. When the thousand years are over, uh, Satan will be released from the prison and will go out to deceive the nations. Quite honestly, uh, I'm not sure why God would release him, whether it's this paradigm or this one. I'm not sure why God would release him at the end. Uh, that's God's sovereignty. Maybe it's simply to prove the fact uh, that he's all-powerful and is going to absolutely crush and conquer Satan and his forces. Satan will be released from the prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Notice again, that's all encompassing the four, all of the earth. Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. 
in number. They're like the sand on the seashore. Agag and Magog have some Old Testament background. Uh, they show up, it seems to be in, Re in Genesis chapter 10. And later on, we find them in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And what they seem to be doing is simply being standing there as symbolic as those who are opposed to God. Now, that's what you have in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 39. So Gog and Magog seem to be simply metaphors or pictures of all that is antagonistic and opposed to the purposes of God among his people. Seems to be why they're mentioned. Uh, something else with this as well. Notice they're gathering for battle. Uh, there's a lot of different perspectives and different kinds of agreement or disagreement on whether or not this is the same battle that we find at the end of Revelation 16, whether it's also the same battle that we find in Revelation 19. Uh, Revelation chapter 16, verse 14 says this, there are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Notice, by the way, yeah, it's a battle, but notice whose great day is it. It's the great day of God Almighty. It's his day. Verse 16, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It's where we get, obviously, the popular idea of Armageddon. Again, not totally sure whether this is the same battle at the, as at the end of Revelation 20. Uh, my sense is that it probably is, because if, if, as we said a number of times, uh, Revelation seems to be kind of capturing the same thing from different angles. And so there seem to be the same different same vision of this battle from different kinds of angles. Uh, interestingly, Armageddon literally means mountain of Megiddo, Mount of Megiddo. Uh, fascinating couple things. Number one, there really is no mount there. There's a kind of a hill and a slope. So some people would say that the reason it's called Mount Megiddo is because, because close by is actually Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel is where God very decisively defeated his enemies with fire and defeated his, the, the false gods of Israel. Also, Megiddo was a place that's referenced in Joshua chapter 4 and 5 in the battle between Barak and Sisera in Judges chapter 5 and 6. It was a battle that took place on the plain of Megiddo. It was a place where the enemies of God's people often met God's people to do battle. That's a place where Megiddo was. It's kind of a pretty famous place for combat in those, in those ways. And in, Je in Joshua chapter 5 specifically, Megiddo is mentioned where God has a decisive victory over Sisera. Uh, Judges chapter 5 says this, Beale, commentator Beal, speaking of Judges 5, says this, God said he would draw out the commander of the army, that is Sisera, with his chariots and many troops to the river Kishon, where the kings came out and fought at the waters of Megiddo in Joshua 5. In the same way, God is ultimately the one drawing the enemy kings together to do battle at Megiddo. Seems to be what's happening. And certainly, people different perspective. Is it symbolic? Is it real? Is it literal? Uh, certainly evil often leads to physical combat and physical combativeness. But, but notice as well, uh, there's never really any combat that actually happens. God simply brings destruction. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 19, is another place where this battle is found. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Revelation chapter 29 they, chapter 20, verse 9, they marched against the, across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Listen to this. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So it seems to be pictured of the forces of evil kind of conspiring and gathering against God, and God simply destroys them with fire. In all of those instances, you actually never really read of an intense battle. You simply read of them gathering for battle and God decisively determining that he's victorious. I think in one of the chapters, it's the word of his mouth that defeats his enemies. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur. 
where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And notice books were open, books plural were open. And another book, singular, was open, which is the book of life. Elsewhere, earlier in Revelation, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, once again, just referencing kind of the compartment of death together, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Verse 14, then death and Hades, sort of death itself, was thrown into the lake of fire. Death itself is being judged. Death itself is being destroyed. The lake of fire is the second death. Again, second death comes up. We talked about that earlier. Ultimate, final, eternal separation from God. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So a couple things as we just kind of finish this up and conclude. We might look at some of these themes a little bit later on, specifically when it comes to God's wrath and judgment. I think we'll probably pick that up at one of our last couple of weeks in Revelation. But, but here's what's happening. Notice that God, there's, there's books that say the deeds of people. And in some sense, every person, whether you're a believer or not, your deeds will be before Christ. Your deeds will be before him. But notice, it says, those whose names are written in the book of life will not be thrown into the lake of fire. Here's what seems to be happening. The book of life, the Lamb's book of life, is the place where there's record of those who are united to Christ through faith. The reason that you will be welcomed into eternal life is because ultimately the Lamb of God paid himself to cover your sin. As an expression of you belonging to the Lamb of God, out of your life flows obedience to God. Hear that again? The reason you'll be welcomed into the presence of God is not because your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. It's because you belong to the Lamb. You're in the Lamb's book of life. You've been bought with the shed blood of Christ. But John is making a point that those who are genuinely bought with the shed blood of the Lamb out of their lives should be a visible flow of obedience and following after him. So you are held secure, not because you work hard and make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You are held secure through the blood of the Lamb. You are in the book of life, not because of your efforts, but because of the blood of the Lamb. But because you belong to God, because you're his son, you're his daughter, there should be an outflow of obedience, faithfulness, service to the Lamb. That doesn't put you in the book of life. Being in the book of life means your deeds are seen as belonging to the Lamb. I'm going to ask our team to come up and we're going to close out the service by singing the song that reminds us that we do not overcome in ourselves. It's the Lamb who defeats evil. It's the Lamb who deals with Satan, the dragon, the serpent, the deceiver. It's the Lamb who defeats Satan. It's the Lamb who purchases us belonging to God. It's the Lamb that enables us to be secure. We belong to the Lamb. 
And because we belong to the Lamb, the life of the Lamb is lived through us. And so may our lives belong to the Lamb. And may His life be lived through us. If you never made that commitment this morning, it could be a great morning to do that, whether you're online or in our auditorium. So if you say, God, I've been, I've been born once, but I need to be born into your family. I need to embrace Jesus as my Savior. I need to be united to Christ in faith. I need to His Holy Spirit to give me the gift of eternal life. I need to be born twice. which puts you in the Lamb's book of life as one who belongs to God. And maybe for the rest of us, our lives need to deepen in being a reflection of the Lamb. Out of our lives need to flow the life of Christ and the life of the Lamb. Not because we're trying hard, but because his life flows through us. Let's stand. Let's sing a song together. Let's sing it with a sense of conviction, belief, um, as an affirmation that God, the Lamb, is the one who makes us worthy. He's the one who overcomes.